out now. Mm-hmm. Good. That is better. Okay. So let me just do a little bit of a sound check and level you real quick here. Um, could you just tell me something? I've been at work since about 7.30, uh, seeing patients, and I'm more than happy to do this because that gets me off work a little bit early. Mm. And uh, then I've got Locus after that, which is pretty good. I don't know if you've been involved with that, but mm. Aces, good class. Welcome to the Inform Podcast. I am your host, Neil Gorman, and the voice that you heard at the top of this episode right before the introduction music started to play is the voice of somebody who's named Michael McAndrews. And Michael McAndrews is a practicing psychoanalyst out in Colorado who I had the pleasure of meeting recently at the Clinical Study Days, which is an annual event put on by the Lacanian Compass. Now, the Lacanian Compass has been referenced on this podcast a number of times, but who knows? Maybe this is your first time here. So let me say a little bit about the Lacanian Compass. It is a group of Lacanian clinicians and thinkers, and it operates in the United States. It is a wonderful group. I'm a member of this group. I've been a member of this group for some time, and I will have a link to their website in my show notes, but it's a pretty easy URL to remember, lacaniancompass.com. If you type that into a web browser, you'll be able to go and check out all of the different things that the Lacanian Compass is doing, and they are doing a large number of things, such as the clinical study days. Uh, That happened this past February. There'll be another one happening next year. It'll take place who knows where. They haven't announced where it will be. But if you're somebody who's interested in clinical psychoanalysis, the clinical study days is a wonderful event that you can go to. You do not need to be a member of the Lacanian Compass to register or attend or even present a case at this conference. So I just want to say that if you're interested in Lacanian psychoanalysis, you should really check out the Lacanian Compass and you should really check out the work they're doing, which culminates in their annual conference called the Clinical Study Days. You might also notice that at the very end of the opening chit chat, Michael said that he was about to go to something called Locus after he was done with the interview. Locus is a class which is put on by the Lacanian Compass, and that's another really interesting thing. There'll also be information about that at the Lacanian Compass website. So Enough about the Lacanian Compass. It's awesome. You should check it out. Let me tell you a little bit more about Mr. Michael McAndrews. As I said, I met Michael very recently, this past February, at the Clinical Study Days. I presented a case there, and Michael also presented a case there. And when I listened to Michael present his case, I was very intrigued by the work that he was describing. I was very interested in what he's doing and why it is that he's doing it. So I want to give you a little bit of information about that work. Not too much because he's going to tell you more about it in the interview, but here's just a little bit of something that might be helpful for you to know as you get into it. The first thing is that Michael is somebody who, like me, is really invested in, very interested in, very passionate about making psychoanalysis more available to people. Now, when I say more available, I want to be pretty specific about this. I'm not saying, and Michael's not saying, that everybody should go into psychoanalysis. That's not what either of us think. But both of us happen to think that there's a lot of people who, for a variety of different reasons, don't know about psychoanalysis, or if they do know about it, they think that it's something which is out of reach for them because it costs too much time or money or both. And Michael is really interested in actively 
providing psychoanalysis to people who normally don't know about it or who normally would think, you know what, I probably can't afford that. And this is really great work. I, I love it whenever I come across somebody who's doing this kind of work, who's taking this thing that I think is wonderful psychoanalysis and working to make it more available to more people, not shoving it down their throats, not demanding, not trying to put it everywhere, but just saying it would be great if it was more available. The second thing that's really interesting about the work that Michael's doing is that the clinic that he works at provides services to people who have lost a baby, a child, or a pregnancy. You know, people who suffered some kind of fairly traumatic loss. And this is, I think, really important work because this is something that affects a lot of people. There's a lot of people who are going through these sorts of things. So I think it's incredibly fascinating, interesting, and wonderful that there is a clinic and a person who is actively really attempting to, you know, take this thing that I think is so wonderful, psychoanalysis, and make it available to people who've suffered this kind of loss and do so in a way that they can afford, in a way that they can access. This is really, really, really great stuff. So the conversation that you're about to hear between me and Michael is about the work that Michael does, why he does it, why, how he got into it, that sort of thing. It is a very informal conversation, which is great for the Inform podcast. My, my tagline for this podcast is informal, but hopefully informative conversations. And that's what you're about to hear between Michael and I is one of those kinds of conversations. We talk about a bunch of different things. We talk about Michael's formation as an analyst. We talk about his work. He tossed some questions back my way at different points, and I answer those questions. So he kind of, you know, uh, flips the script in a way and starts to interview me, who's supposed to be interviewing him. But the result is good, and I really do hope that you all enjoy it. There were a couple of instances where the internet connection got a little bit weird and the audio kind of got a little bit messed up, so I did have to do some editing to clean that up. I don't think that that has messed with the final product too much, but you might notice it at a couple of points here and there. I apologize for that in advance. And I don't think I have anything else to tell you right now. So thank you for downloading and listening to this. Here is Mr. Michael McAndrews. All right. So, Michael McAndrews, welcome to the Inform Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking a lot about some of the ways that you provide psychoanalysis to people who might not know that psychoanalysis was a thing that existed, period. Or if they did, they might have thought it was something that they wouldn't have had access to for various reasons. Uh, to kind of get us started here, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and how you kind of came into psychoanalysis, your your story, your origin of how you became sure. the kind of uh, practitioner that you are? Uh, we'll see if it's a villainous origin story or not. Um, so I am a member of the Colorado Analytic Forum and a member of School of Psychoanalysis of the Lacanian field of the International Forums. And I hadn't heard about psychoanalysis really myself Um I was a little familiar with Slavoj Zizek when I was in the military, which is probably worthy of its own podcast of how that even happened. And eventually I got out, um, sort of looking for career options. I saw that, oh, many veterans uh, work with uh, people as, as counselors, as therapists. And I was like, okay, well, I'll give this a shot. Um, 
And while in my counseling program, I had the good fortune to encounter a professor who was himself, is himself a Lacanian psychoanalyst. And at first I was just like, oh, I think this is related to Zizek because I heard the name Lacan mentioned in his books, although I'd never read any of the explicitly Lacanian books. And so I took a class with this professor before I was uh, fully accepted into the program. It was a class on addictions and he presented a case and I had never heard of anything conceptualized like this in mental health before that I was familiar with evidence-based treatments, the idea of counseling, of psychotherapy, but this was a case of a Lacanian psychoanalysis and working with a problem of addiction. And I remember I asked the guy, my professor, I was like, well, did the guy get better? And he's like, well, what is better? And I was like, oh, okay, I, th I think I know what this is. I'm interested in this. And um, not long after that, I entered the program and began my own analytic formation uh, full stop. I've never worked any other way than as a Lacanian psychoanalyst in formation. Um, a couple years later, uh, was sort of dissatisfied with general agency work, hadn't yet really opened my own practice. And I found work at a very small nonprofit which provided pro bono at the time counseling, now psychoanalysis services for people who had experienced the loss of a child, infant, or fetus. Uh, this can happen a variety of ways. Um, and I say now psychoanalysis because, again, it's a really small nonprofit and I'm the sole employee. And that's all we have here. Mm. Okay. So there's a lot of things in what you just brought up that I think would be interesting to potentially kind of explore a little bit more and, and possibly unpack a bit. So one of the first things that you talked about is, you know, you were, you were in the military, you did time doing that. And when you got out of the military, it sounds like you had some kind of an interest in becoming a mental health professional in some way, right? You were like, okay, that seems like something I'd be interested in doing. You knew about psychotherapy. You knew about evidence-based practices. You knew that kind of stuff because that's, really worked its way into the sort of like general culture I think that we're in, right? People know about these things. And so that's kind of where, where you started. And then you discovered this thing called psychoanalysis and you realized that it was different than what we might call psychotherapy. So maybe we could start there. And if you don't mind maybe exploring that a little bit, saying something about how you specifically, you know, see psychoanalysis and how it relates or doesn't relate, how it's similar, how it's different from psychotherapy. Sure. So at, at the time, before I understood the distinction or that was something very different, uh, my understanding was through my own uh, personal lens was that, uh, I guess, a veteran's mental health thing. These are the treatments approved for veterans. This is what you want to do with a veteran. I wouldn't even say patient. They would consider the client. You want EMDR. You want trauma-focused uh, CBD. Uh, you want psychopharmacology. These are the treatments for veterans, and they're available at your local friendly neighborhood VA. This, this is the treatment for this person. Um, was the idea that for each kind of problem, there was a specific treatment for each hand, there was a glove. That was my impression. With psychoanalysis, what was first presented to me was this is... This can be an offer for anyone. This is not to say psychoanalysis for everybody. That's very aspirational. That would be great. Maybe it wouldn't. But that psychoanalysis could be on offer to anyone who really wants to put those things to question, 
who's willing to put those identifications of, say, just being a veteran to question or just being just a grieving mother. Um, you know, for certain, for, for example, putatively, my job is as a grief counselor, I guess you could say. Um, I don't provide grief counseling in that way. Now I, you know, do have all the, the state mandates and liability insurance and all of these things and work at a place that does this. But it's also not just about that one thing. It's also not just symptom treatment. It's you know, symptom treatment, let's say. So for you, you what, what you realized is that psychotherapy is this practice or set of practices. You, I think you said every, for every hand there is a glove, right? So if, if this mm -hmm. is the sort of problems that a person comes in with and they say, this is what I'm experiencing in my life, this is how I would describe my problems. This is how long they've existed for. You come up with some kind of categorical diagnosis. And then from that categorical diagnosis, you apply the categorical type of treatment. That's what you were familiar with. And there was something I'm guessing that you found lacking in that, maybe even dissatisfying. And that psychoanalysis offered a different way of trying to approach what was going on with people and perhaps a non-categorical approach? Yeah. And it, it was not that way at first for me because my first experience with a psychoanalyst, uh, encountering an analyst wasn't a counseling program. And at the time it was sort of implicitly presented as psychoanalysis is a theory of counseling, which is absurd to think about now. At the time I was like, oh, well, some people are doing this and some people are doing this and I am doing this. But it became very clear to me after just a few short months of study and attending and beginning to attend seminars already first semester of grad school, that this psychoanalysis was very different than these psychotherapies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that sort of invoked a division in me. It was like, oh, I'm in this uh, mental health program. But then this thing over here completely is antithetical to everything about counseling, about a mental health discourse, about diagnosis, all these things, all these things, uh, which made the remaining year and a half in the program um, somewhat of an adventure. Mm. I think that one of the things that comes up a lot in the kind of academic work that I do, where I teach about psychoanalysis, I get asked constantly. I mean, every... I might, might not be a stretch to say at least once a week, uh, definitely once every two weeks for sure. People will say, explain to me the difference between psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. And for me, that's a tough question because <laughs> there's a lot that makes them different. But one of the things that I have, I guess, chosen to focus on is the way that psychoanalysis is not interested in categories in the same way that other things are, right? It's it's interested, I think, in all of the things that defy categories, all of the stuff that can't be classified, can't be explained, is is just way like off the map and, and seemingly bizarre. All of the things that don't work in a person's life and that are unintelligible, this is going to be the stuff that psychoanalysis really focuses on. And I also think, I'm curious if you would agree or disagree on this, that psychotherapies, which I think can be really useful to people. I, I don't want to rag on psychotherapy or say that it's a bad thing or that people should avoid it because I think that that's not true. I think that psychotherapy can be great, but one of the things that I don't know that it does in the way that psychoanalysis does 
is help people to confront whatever it is in themselves and in their lives that does not have a solution. It's the kind of stuff that you just, you can't fix this, you can't cure this, you can't solve this, you have to live with this, whatever it may be. So that's been one of the ways that I've described, I guess, the difference. So how does that sound to you? Does that match up, not match up? Yeah, I, I would agree with that, particularly given the work that I'm doing with, again, 99% women who have lost children where sometimes that loss is unexplainable, that medical science, perhaps frustratingly, cannot say why you lost that baby. This just happened. Cannot say why this child died in the crib. This, this just happened. This was an accident. This was fate. This was biology. There, there's a lot more to say, but there's also not an explanation in that way, that that scar will always be there, but one can change the relation to it, perhaps, um, that it has to go be on these things of a grief counseling, I think, mm-hmm. of, you know, someone coming in right after something like this happening to still really give them the opportunity to, to historicize, to say what else comes to their mind about these things other times that this is resonant of, which is often very surprising to them, the, the links of association they'll make with uh, the death of their child with, with something else. Mm-hmm. So another thing that, that was in your original kind of origin story that I asked you about is you used a, a phrase that is kind of unique to psychoanalysis, or at least it seems to be unique to me. And you said you're an analyst in formation. And I, I was wondering if maybe you'd like to say, again, for you, what that phrase means when you say that you're an analyst in formation as opposed to saying, I'm a mental health professional or I'm a psychotherapist sure. or I'm a psychoanalyst. Why why you say I'm an analyst in formation? I mean, it's interesting because it sets uh, so far against certain parts of, of the mental health discourse at least two of the most popular degrees for mental health are social work and counseling. You become a master's in social work, become a master's in counseling, you become a master. And there was an idea, at least in the counseling program I attended, but then in speaking with other counselors, other social workers that you've got your two-year degree, you've got your two to three years of supervised experience, and then you got it, you know it all, you are ready you are the master you have your license and you're set and at least with psychoanalysis is it's not a two-year process let's start there um but also it's an ongoing thing that you know for for us for for an analyst you have the tripod you have one's own analysis the study of the theory and then the control of cases and this is ongoing now when at least the analysis ends that's a matter of one's own case to be determined at a later date, perhaps. But I mean, to control cases, to study the theory, these are ongoing. This doesn't end when you get a licensure or when you graduate. Indeed, there is no licensure. Well, there are some psychoanalytic licensures, but that's maybe another different podcast. Um, it's ongoing. It's, it's the constant and ongoing formation of the analyst. So what I hear in, in what you're describing here... And, is and sometimes I have been... Oh. No, go ahead, please. Oh, some Sometimes I have been asked by patients, like, after a certain moment or a certain intervention, you know, the next session. So you are, a, you know, you are a mental health professional, right? Like that this is grief counseling of some sort. Um, 
yeah, that that it, it becomes very apparent to people that choose to enter into the treatment that what they're getting is very different. That they did not know they would be seeing a psychoanalyst, but now are. Mm-hmm. But now are in an analysis, perhaps, or are coming into an analysis. That's interesting because I think that uh, your comparison to get, becoming a master by getting a master's degree mm-hmm. compared to being in formation by a continual engagement with a lived experience, the lived experience of, mm-hmm. you know, developing a transference to one's own analyst and then, you know, kind of working through that in a variety of ways, doing the supervision or the control of cases where you talk about your work with somebody and or maybe multiple people. I, I know psychoanalysts who work with multiple supervisors and I know psychoanalysts who work with just one. And then the the work with a community, a school, another group of people who are very interested in in the theory that this is work that never comes to an end, right? You're never done being figuring out what kind of an analyst you are. Now, that's not to say that you don't become more knowledgeable or more skilled or more practiced. All of those things do happen and those things tend to have effects. But the idea of reaching some sort of point of termination where there'd be an institution or a person who would confer upon you the title, you are now an analyst, that that is not really part of the process is what I'm, I'm getting at from your description of, of how you think of the, the analyst in formation. Is that accurate? For a Lacanian, I would say so, yes. For a Lacanian who's a member of a school, absolutely. But not 100%. maybe for like um, I, other perhaps uh, styles of analysis? Yeah. I, I would say so. Um, my understanding, having been having some voluntary associations with people in this group, is there is sort of stepwise. Well, now you've taken the psychodynamic psychotherapy class. So now you're that. Now you've taken the psychoanalytic psychotherapy courses. So now you're that. Oh, now you're an analyst because you took those classes and you had this many hours of analysis. Mm-hmm. And if you're very good, then you get to be a supervising analyst and then the world is your oyster at the tender age of 67 or something like this. I think what you're getting at, uh, to put an explicit name to it, is some of the differences between the Lacanian style of forming as an analyst versus the IPA style, which is a different style, right? You know, the IPA has their, their way of training and their way of saying to somebody, you've done enough work to be an analyst Mm -hmm. at this point and that the Lacanian world is different. And like you, the I'm, guarantee of the other. Sure, yeah, like you, I'm a I'm a Lacanian, and there's reasons for that. Part of the reason for me is that I think that what Lacan created, the style of psychoanalysis mm-hmm. he created, and the style of of school that was also created through the different things that Lacan did, the different teachings he engaged in with people, that that's the one that speaks to me. It's the one that makes the most sense because it is the one that very explicitly acknowledges that you know there's not no one can tell you you're an analyst that's not how it works it doesn't work that way um Mm -hmm. there's other things that need to happen really for somebody to start to consider themselves an analyst and to start doing analytic work uh i think there's there's perhaps a a flip side to that coin in that nobody can say who should or shouldn't be an analysand that who should or shouldn't be in treatment that uh one doesn't have to know a great deal about Lacan or any of these things, or even really anything about any of this to 
to understand conceptually how a Lacanian analysis works because they're inside of it. Sure. Uh, that one doesn't need to be, you know, educated about logical versus chronological time and the history of the short session and the controversy of that to understand when they've heard a cut, when they've said it, and then it's time to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I'll let, uh, and I think there's some stuff in that that we might circle back around mm-hmm. to. One of the other things that you said, and I think that this is part of the reason why I asked you to be on the podcast today is because I think you have a unique experience around this idea. There's an idea that psychoanalysis would be great if it was more available, if it was available Mm -hmm. to more people, which is not saying that psychoanalysis is for everybody. It isn't, Mm -hmm. right? There are some people that do not want to do psychoanalysis. There's various reasons why they wouldn't want to do it. And that's okay. Not for you. Mm -hmm. Got it. Uh, But there are some people who probably would get something out of psychoanalysis, but they don't know that it's there. Or perhaps they know that it's there, but they think that it's something that they can't afford. They think that there's not an analyst in their area because they might live in a more rural community or something to that effect. I'm really interested in how you have kind of picked up on this idea of making psychoanalysis more available without forcing it upon people who don't want it? Well, the, the, the door is open, I should say. Um, and at least in this particular practice of, of these analyses of mine, it is those who have lost a child or of some, some kind. Uh, and that's an extraordinarily wide category. Um, that this could be a treatment for somebody who is just seeking treatment. It's just someone has said to them, go seek treatment, go see this person. This is their specialty. No more than that. Uh, Tom, Tom Svovos put it really wonderfully in, uh, what is it, the, the Aims of Analysis, one of the Miami seminars a few years ago, that people don't know they're coming to see me. This is what he says, because they know about Lacan or Freud or all the schools. Somebody said, uh, go see this guy. He's good or you suffer, you, you should go talk to this man. In Omaha, which is, to my understanding, a much smaller city than Denver and much more rural, if, if you open the door, people will come in and your clinic will be full. Uh, I work all day. Um, and I, I'm able to at least provide the kind of pro bono treatment under the, the aegis of this nonprofit because it's uh, paid for, there are donations, there are these things that make this treatment available for these these women, um, for anybody who does wish to enter into an analysis. And not all of them do. I've had people come in and say, you know what, I think this is actually pretty intense. It's not for me. Or, oh, I actually found a therapist I'd like to work with on my side of town. And I say, well, thank you very much. Good luck. Please be in touch. Uh, sometimes I will hear from, from people again. But that something can happen to people who have not been listened to in a way where they can say something and really feel like they're heard in a way that, um, that their particular signifiers that what they're saying can be listened to. Um, the world doesn't want to hear about people's lost children. There's not a good cultural reference for this. And when it's talked about people shut their ears husbands, boyfriends, family members, please, you need to get over this. Just go to counseling. Uh, Yo, you can have another baby. Well, maybe God just wanted this. Stop talking to me about it. But to be told, say whatever is on your mind, no matter what it is, with no censorship, 
that's a hell of an invitation. Mm. And I think people are, are enthusiastic to accept that. This is my experience anyway. So you, you brought up the, this a couple of times, the, the work that you're doing with this non-for-profit entity that you're the only employee in is to provide something, to provide an experience to women who have lost a, a child, a, a baby, a fetus, that have experienced some kind of loss. Can you talk to me maybe a little bit about how you got the idea to form this non-for-profit? I, I'm assuming that you, you formed it. Oh, I didn't form it. Uh, it's been around, and I'm not going to say the name on the podcast just for whatever reason. Um, I'm an employee. I don't run it. Uh, it's been around since the late 70s, early 80s, um, because people have always been losing children, unfortunately, and there's always been a need for support. There's different supports around it, but there is this, this therapeutic support, which is, is largely um, the job of one person that's historically worked for this nonprofit. I just happened to be tired of the grind of agency work, of billing more hours, and you have to do this, and it's to the treatment plan. And this job was not far from my neighborhood. And I was like, well, okay, I'll apply. I'd like something a little more low, low key is maybe not the word, but not the grind of agency work. And um, that was three years ago. And I've maybe a little more and I've been doing it since then. No, I'm, I didn't found it. I just happened to get into a sweet spot. So what is it that uh, other than the, some of the logistical stuff, it was close to your home it was something that was in the city that you were in, so on and so forth. What is it that maybe drew you to this work? Because I, I do get the impression when you talk about it, this is something that has some importance to you. So this particular work, uh, even back in, in the counseling days, I guess I should say, though they didn't last very long, I had an idea that there should be good quality treatment for people that's affordable. Um, I had an idea from some of my own experience and those of some of my colleagues and friends in the military that you could go to the VA and the treatment you might receive might not be very good. Some VAs are really good, but the ones that aren't usually make the news for being pretty bad with long wait times, uh, not really maybe a high quality of care. Or you could go see somebody out in town, wherever you are, and it's going to cost you 150 bucks and they don't take TRICARE. And you definitely don't have insurance because, you know, you have TRICARE. So TRICARE being the, the military insurance, why would you have um, private insurance? And I thought, well, what if there was a place where people, what if there were providers who could provide uh, good treatment for people at a, at a low or even no cost? And so I guess really, you know, that has been sort of at, at the genesis of this. And um, the way Lacanian psychoanalysis has been transmitted to me historically is not necessarily from from France, but from South America, where they have so many of these low-cost clinics, where psychoanalysis is a public service, uh, where it goes to the psychoanalyst, where it's not even unusual. It's more unusual if you don't, maybe. Um, that, that psychoanalysis can be something, this invitation can still be for everyone. And I just happened to be tired of working in the mainstream and found this job. But it doesn't sound like the person was looking for somebody to come and work there psychoanalytically. That They were just looking for someone to work for the kind of thing a nonprofit will pay you. Okay. And you... Uh, some, some sort of therapist. 
So, so you were already at that this point interested in psychoanalysis. You were no. engaged in your own formation as an analyst, and you found this job, and you brought psychoanalysis to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of that was my frustration of not really feeling like I was able to intervene very well in large for-profit agency settings, um, a variety of things that it just, you know, uh, big mental health corporations. And I was just like, this is not for me. And this was just a small place with an office and some furniture that they have since now added a psychoanalytic couch since I've started working here. But um, I added that. But yeah, I, that this could be something something a little different, something that could be access to people who might normally not have the option to get this. Uh, most of my analysands don't even have private insurance. Um, many of them work jobs that pay hourly or part-time. Many of them are single mothers. Uh, a quick note about the gender. It's not to say I've never seen any men here. It's just, I guess you could say the sign on the door tends to bring in a particular kind of person. Mm-hmm. Um, but that this this can be a treatment for someone to undertake as long as they need, that it's there. And and some treatments go you know, much longer. Uh, some people I've worked with much shorter, uh, each case one by one. One of the things that you're talking about, which I, I think is really important, and again, I'm going to share just a quick anecdote here. I, I teach at university and I have my own analytic practice. And one of the things that I have to do as part of my university work is go to various recruitment events where potential students show up and they are there to, you know, kind of hear all about the different kinds of programs that are offered and what gets entailed, so on and so forth. And uh, at the the program, at this particular time that I was doing this, you know, I said, hi, my name is Neil. I'm an associate professor. I've been here for this many years, blah, blah, blah. In addition to working here I, at the university, I also work as a psychoanalyst. And, you know, I, I just kind of made a quick comment about it. I didn't go into it. I didn't say anything else about it. I just, this is a little bit about me. And afterwards, uh, people had some questions and somebody uh, said, you know, they asked me specifically, they're like, you know, you said you were a psychoanalyst and I don't know a lot of people that are. And I certainly don't know any social workers because I teach in a school of social work. I don't know any social workers who are psychoanalysts. Could you mind uh, saying something about that? And uh, I said quickly, you know, sure. I, I think that social work is a profession, a, a discipline that claims to care about social justice, economic justice, environmental justice. These are some of the preoccupations of the profession and the discipline of social work. And I find that working psychoanalytically is actually, for me, the the best way to kind of work towards those sorts of values, right? To be oriented towards them. And that's all I said again. I didn't really get into it. And then later on, the the person found me as there was like a mingle session that you could do afterwards. And I want to talk to you more about that. I want to hear more about why you think that psychoanalysis is the thing that is so oriented towards social justice because in in my experience, psychoanalysis is this thing that, you know, rich white people do when they live in New York or something like that. It's not this, it's not, I've never heard about psychoanalysis being oriented towards social justice. I bring that up in response to what you have said, because just a short time ago, you brought up 
how psychoanalysis has this incredible presence and rich history within non-European countries, Latin American countries in particular. And it's it's a wonderful history, and I don't think that people know a lot about it. So that was just a, a long way, I suppose, to introduce this idea. How do you see the intersection between Lacanian psychoanalysis, or if you want to say more broadly, all psychoanalysis, and social justice? It's, it's interesting because it's a way of allowing someone, say, to speak totally about their experience that is being marginalized, or is that, uh, to use this sort of language, at the intersection of a lot of marginalized identities. Someone who is lower income, someone who is a woman of color, someone who, you know, maybe has not been treated very well uh, by therapeutic entities when they've encountered them in the past, that has maybe not had good experience with the state and these things. To say to someone who's going through the loss of a child, you just say whatever is on your mind and without empathy, not to say, you know, being some sort of a cold fish or uh, saying nothing. I'm certainly not a stone. I, I feel I intervene freely, but to not offer that, uh, that sticky sympathy that I think sometimes gets people really caught up in the ideas and some of these, these circles of social justice, like, well, I'm so sorry that happened to you and I'm relating to you now. And now we're having a, a, a two person thing here and this is all about all of us, but no, this is really just about you a person who more than likely has not had a lot of chances to speak, to really just go ahead and say really whatever comes to your mind. I mean, I feel like I keep repeating that, but I have to. That is the fundamental rule of psychoanalysis is to say whatever is on your mind. It's not a practice most people are acquainted with. I mean, forget everything else about psychoanalysis, all the rich trappings, but to really speak freely in a place where you know, a person is circumscribed as being, you are this person, these are the things you can do, these are all you can ever do. For me to say, this is who you are, you're a marginalized person, you need to say these things. Why don't you just speak? And, you know, I'm not going to say very much about myself at all. Indeed, I don't. I don't. Um, it, it often comes up later when people are like kind of inquiring again about what sort of treatment am I doing here? Why am I on this couch? Um, the couch seems to invoke more questions than maybe, uh, but only in a good way, mostly like, oh, this is nice. I, we've taken the inner subjective thing out of this. There's no more gaze in that way. People hear it, I think. People can hear it to learn to listen to their own unconscious, an unconscious that isn't really listened to, maybe not by them and maybe not by anyone in their lives, to really sort of think about how can they find their own difference in a society that that says this is who you are and this is what you should want that's interesting to me because the way that i think about psychoanalysis has a lot to do with transference and i find that if somebody goes to a psychotherapist or they go to a psychoanalyst there's going to be a and they're they're going they're not being pushed into it they're not being forced into it they're not being coerced into it i'm bracketing that off for this if somebody brings themselves to some kind of clinical experience, they tend to have a transference. And I would simplify transference as the belief that the person who you're going to can give you what you want. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I think that a lot of times people enter psychotherapy and psychoanalysis and they have this, uh, this fantasy, this idea. If mm-hmm. I say the right thing, if I, if I tell this person about my symptoms, if I tell them about my past, my trauma, some combination of those, they will hear that and they will know something that I don't know. They will understand something that I don't understand. And then what they'll do is they'll give me something and that, mm-hmm. that is a form of an answer. They'll tell me what to do. They'll tell me what's wrong with me. They'll tell me what my treatment plan should be and then I'll follow that treatment plan and everything will get better in my life. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of going back to an earlier question, I think, but in psychotherapy, I think the transference is not really resisted to the same degree mm-hmm. that it is within psychoanalysis. And psychoanalysis, well, that transference may be there, I would argue that the psychoanalyst abdicates that power, abdicates that position of mastery and privilege that the patient wants to kind of foist upon them. And they don't, they don't like be like, oh, no, 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 you can't do it. You know, it's not, it's not this like crazy, get that away from me kind of rejection. It's just not picking yeah. it up. It's not, not the, the, the patient offers it and you consistently return that to them in some way or, or another. And to me, this is one of the re- things that makes psychoanalysis consistent with social justice because psychoanalysis does not accept that, that authority, does not accept that I am the one who knows and you're the one who doesn't. I'm going to tell you about your life. I'm going to tell you about your symptom. I'm going to tell you about you. No, there's, please tell me about you. You know, why, why don't you talk? I'll listen and then occasionally say things as they occur to me, but you're the expert on your experience, not me. Uh, and, and continually offering the the patient or the analysand the the opportunity to be the one who who speaks and to be the one That's, who says what needs to be said. It's interesting you make that distinction, patient and analysand, because certainly in the preliminary interviews, uh, I try to be very clear with with this thing that in this treatment there are no guarantees that I can't guarantee that you will come here for 12 sessions and now you've successfully grieved the loss of your child. Thank you. Go with God. You know, good luck to you out there. Uh, but that, you know, again, there are no guarantees that a sort of a rabbi anical, like, what could I tell you about this? And I think in terms of, I'd be, I, I won't, I, I won't not acknowledge the elephant in the room. I am a man. Uh, these are largely women coming to see me. So there is a certain, there's always going to be a certain separation there that, that resists the identification, that there's never going to be anyone saying to me, well, you're a woman, you know, or you, you're a mother, you know what exactly this is like. No, that, that kind of identification naturally always presents itself in the form of a semblant, that this analyst is like this. It keeps it going, uh, that he might know something I don't, maybe possibly, but while still not necessarily returning that again as like, well, this is, this is what it's going to be. And I mean that, you know, all demands in treatment are these, these demands uh, can be resisted in this way. Like, which it's a difficult demand to resist sometimes. Like, am I ever going to get better? Am I ever stop going to stop feeling like I'm in complete hell after the death of my child? You know, some therapists, I'm certain a lot of therapists would be like, yes, one day this, this will get better if you work really hard at it. I ethically could not guarantee that. I, I would not uh, 
be able to look myself in the mirror if I did that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think the results can speak for themselves in one's own analysis uh, and the analysis of these analysands. I think that that's actually another really important thing is that in psychoanalysis, people vote with their feet. They come to the session mm-hmm. because they find there's something of value. This mm-hmm. is another potential difference between psychoanalysis and psychotherapy in my experience. I find a lot of psychotherapists who I talk to will, they, the therapist, will be the person who decides that the treatment should come to an end. And a lot of times they will decide that because they will just think, they'll believe that nothing is happening. No progress is being made. I'll hear versions of that all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were working for a while and this came up and that came up and we talked about it and we worked through and so on and so forth. And now, like, nothing's happening. You know, they just kind of show up and they just talk and nothing really happens. No progress is made. Where I've never heard a psychoanalyst say that because there's this assumption, it seems to me, that if the person is showing up, something is happening. I may not be able to explain exactly what that is. I might not be able to write it up in a case note or some such, but there is something that's happening because the person is showing up. And... That, that, again, is a very different thing. I think that's very consistent with social justice because it allows for the patient or the analysand to decide when the patient, when, when the treatment starts and when they've had enough. When they, they, they're like, okay, I'm, I'm good now. I'm going to take my chances and head out. Uh, I think that this is a really important distinction. You know, for, for a while, uh, although that has since changed, um, a number of more neurotic individuals let's say that i worked with uh decided in the course of treatment that they were going to have another child uh with their partners or their spouses or whoever and after they would have that child would say okay well now i think that this treatment is concluded like i'm i think i'm good now and i would always say okay well there there you go like you can't argue with that result as as analyses go from weeks to months to years there are those times where I'm like, well, I don't know what quite is happening here. And that would be a good time maybe, I think, for me to at least control the case and be like, well, here's what's happened. Here's some things that are being said. Perhaps is there something I'm overlooking? Because something is happening, but perhaps I'm just not perceiving it in the session. So what can I hear as I tell it to somebody else, a control analyst, for example? Um, which, again, I think might differentiate things from counseling and psychotherapy where you don't need to supervise a case after you got your license. You know it all. And if nothing's happening, nothing's happening. Who would know? You, right? Yeah. Um, the, the analyst is always in that position of not knowing, of, of not understanding, or should be anyway. And if you understand too much, again, control. Sure. That's the, the transference dynamic I was speaking about earlier. It's, it's not picking up the that I am the one who knows. Yes, I do, <laughs> right? It's it's maintaining that position of the one who doesn't. Uh, or even if you do know, that's not the position that you operate in when you conduct an analysis, right? Like, because of course you know things, I know things. I've read lots of theory, you've read lots of theory. We have various clinical experiences that have accumulated over time, so we have experiential knowledge. And, and so the knowledge is there. It would be foolish, I think, to say that it isn't. But you don't... You don't, when you're doing an analysis with somebody, that knowledge is not something that you use to reinforce this potential fantasy that you're going to make it all better. 
Right. I, I think that could even be very cruel for me to say, well, based on my experience of seeing X people, you should be over this about, you know, three months. Uh, it'll be better. You know, you, you go back to work and you'll feel better. Da, 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 da. I, I, you know, that's also asking for an acting out, I think, for somebody to be like, actually, no, I'm not getting better after three months. And now it's going to come play out in the treatment to, to think about these things and how they can play out in a different way, in a non-standard way, I think is also really important. Um, I, I don't have a waiting list. When somebody says they want to come into the clinic by email or, or voicemail or phone call or whatever, say, okay, when's the soonest I can see? Same day even sometimes. And because I don't practice uh, standard length 45 or every session's got to be 45 or 50, I will see everyone I need to see in a day if they can come in or, you know, via phone analysis, if, if that needs to happen or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that non-standard treatment is really important to address a non-standard issue. Uh, again, this, this clinic serves one kind of purpose, but, and I certainly don't want to sound cavalier about this. Children can die in a number of ways. A missed, a miscarriage can happen. A first trimester miscarriage is very different than a second trimester miscarriage. And even the two may be different than each other in the same trimester. But that this this can be um, looked at in a non-standard way is only the way of this analysis speaking. So you, you brought up some stuff there that put some questions in my mind. You, you bring up the use of the variable length session as opposed to using some sort of standardized unit of time, 50 minutes is what a lot of people use. Do you, from session one, start by using a variable length session? Yeah, it may not be so short in session one, uh, but, you know, 30, 45 minutes, who knows? Or it may be longer. I mean, I've all, you know, it's, it's important to note variable length because sometimes sessions can be longer, more than an hour. Maybe two hours. It's happened. It doesn't happen a lot, but it's happened. Yeah, I guess I bring this up. This is uh, perhaps like a very, very, very in the weeds theoretical thing, but the my own formation has been very much within the the work of Jacqueline Miller, and this concept of ordinary psychosis is something that is a a big concept within that world, and one of the things that. I've opted to do, and, and again, this is a personal choice. I don't think that everybody should do this or needs to do this. This is how I work. I tend to operate with about a 45-minute session as a standard in the beginning, right? When, until I have, in a sense, ruled out psychosis, I think it is important to, uh, for there to be some level of consistency and predictability. And then if the the person who I'm working with is able to through whatever way, demonstrate that they have a level of stability in their life, right? That, okay, now I can start thinking about changing this up a little bit and, and doing something which is a little bit more non-standard, which is a little bit more unpredictable, where se sessions get punctuated at specific moments that the analysis doesn't see coming, so on and so forth. But I, I, don't, I don't start there. And so I'm always really interested when I hear about how other people choose to function. And, and I wonder if that's just like because of, you know, my I, I would my say a little on the, on the shorter side, maybe even a little on the shorter side than 45. 
Um, I have a large volume of patients, but I mean, I see most of them. Um, I mean, I see all of them at least two times a week, if not three, mm. rarely more, but it's happened. It happens. Um, sometimes twice in a day, these kind of things to really sort of, um, be creative with it to each case its own. Um, obviously I wouldn't see like everybody twice in a day, but I've done it. I've seen people mm-hmm. three times in a day sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the question of psychosis, psychosis and motherhood are extremely complicated references to each other. I would say a large portion, I'm going to hedge my bet here. I feel relatively confident that many of my analysands are, are of a more neurotic structure, particularly hysteric, although there are, there are others, let's say. Uh, and these cases get, have their own particularities and complications. Hmm. Are you um, at all familiar with the work of Donald Winnicott and specifically the concept that he came up with called primary maternal preoccupation? Winnicott, yes, this particular concept. No, I can't claim to be a scholar on it. It's really interesting. I'm going to paraphrase it pretty brutally here. So Mm -hmm. Winnicott suggested that after a woman gives birth, she enters into this period where, you know, her and the baby, while their bodies have now become separated, continue to be linked sort of psychologically. And they're, they're still the, they are together, right? Like they, they, the baby can't survive without the mother and the mother enters into this period of being very, very, very preoccupied with the comfort and the health of the baby. Like that, that is what matters. That is the only thing that matters during this time to the point where, you know, these wimps, depending on how severe this is, it's not the same for everybody. But in some cases, you know, women will not take good care of themselves or they will, will let other things that they would normally take care of it's just it's not that they're they're seeing it and they're going I'm not going to do that they just like don't see it it just kind of goes away because everything is about this baby and Winnicott suggested that one of the best things that can be done for women who are in this sort of way of being that if it gets really intense is to support them through it that that was his contention so he gave advice to other family members you know whether this would be grandparents or husbands at the time that he was working with of course we're talking about a classical kind of family. Uh, today, it might not necessarily be a husband who would fulfill the partner role. So I'll say partner. Uh, the best thing that you can do is really, really support this person as they go through this period where they're going to be not the way they normally are. Uh, as their body readjusts, recalibrates, so on and so forth, eventually things will shift. And uh, the best thing that you can do is help is support the woman as she goes through this period. I bring that up, one, I think is interesting, but two, my guess is, and I'm very curious what you would think about this, if there's not a similar thing that happens after somebody loses a child, right, that, that there's this period of um, grief that is probably not like anything else that we have a convenient reference to, no. and the best thing that can be done is to go, okay, this person is not going to be operating in their normal way. They're going to be very, very compromised. And what I will do is I will do my best to support them and see to the things that are just not going to be important to them, but they are important. They do need to be done. Uh, So we will see to them until this person kind of starts to emerge enough from this way of being and and maybe returns to some type of a uh, 
version of life the way that it was before. So it's an interesting way of thinking about that. Um, I do work with a lot of single mothers and I don't necessarily make it a habit of meeting or speaking to partners and families, other children, although it's happened. Um, again, because this is a small nonprofit, uh, they do certain events, a few a year to raise money for it. So strangely, as people's analysts, because I'm also an employee of this nonprofit, I will also attend these things and I will meet these other children and these husbands that I've heard so much about or family members. And they may bring out quite a bit of family. And um, mm-hmm. that in itself is an interesting experience of sort of um, not necessarily uh, holding to that same sanitary cordon that some analysts might. But also there's this idea, at least that I think of it in terms of the loss in a, in a more Lacanian way of, you know, the child is the phallus and then it's been lost. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, and, and this can lead to, I think, some very, I won't get too overly into it, but a very Freudian formulation. Like I've lost the phallus, perhaps he knows something about it. Um, yeah. I can't tell. There might be like your shirt or something rubbing against your mic from time to time. That, oh, sorry. Uh, uh, no yeah. worries. No worries. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting to me to to think about this. I mean, Winnicott, of course, was a pediatrician prior to being an analyst, and so working sure. with mothers and children was his day in day out. Yeah. And then he continued to work at Paddington Green's Children's Hospital, you know, even after he had his own analytic practice. So this is very much a part of it. And I I think that that's interesting for a lot of people who are working as analysts today, because I'm trying to think about this here. I don't know anybody who works solely. As, like that's the only thing that they do. I, I am a psychoanalyst who sees people in an analytic way, and that's that's the only thing that I do. Maybe, maybe you do that. I I, I don't I don't know. I've heard, I've heard of people like that, I guess, but I nobody I know well or personally. Yeah, you know, I suppose some very older analysts do that. Um, yeah, maybe they're the last generation. But I, I think um, one thing at least, I guess I could broadly say maybe our generation of analysts is this idea that, yes, one can maintain their own analytic practice, but also work at a university or a nonprofit or a hospital or this or that. Um, it would be very interesting, I think, actually, in this context, to consider what an analyst who was also a pediatrician might look like. Because I hear, you know, just with American healthcare system being what it's like, absolute horror stories sometimes of doctors who have no compassion, no no, no need to support this. You're in and you're out. Then again, I've also heard stories of, of wonderful doctors, wonderful OBs who have been very supportive of people of these things. So, you know, your mileage may vary, but no, I don't know anyone who does, you know, just, just the one thing uh, mm-hmm. at this point. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, not a way that I know of that people can mm-hmm. support themselves with if they want to have uh, enough money to, to do things that people want to do. It's going to be very hard to do that if you're only working as an analyst in private practice, seeing patients psychoanalytically. Um, there's, a, I think, this in the United States, certainly, maybe it's different in different countries, but there is this, I, I would say, necessity to start to engage with other other things, right? You have other ways that you provide an income for yourself, other institutions that you're going to work with. You work for in, in a non profit agency that did not start out as a psychoanalytic nonprofit agency. Uh, so you, you found it and brought psychoanalysis there and have been able they, to do something. They only things. have one employee and I only do one thing. So yeah. that's what you got. Um, 
No, it's an interesting thing because I mean, it, it it's one of those crucial questions of psychoanalysis. Like the analyst should be in and of the polis, like to to be interfacing, I guess, for lack of a better term, with people in the community, to be working not just like only with people who are going to pay you some wonderful princely fee. And if this patient ever comes around, please let me know to see you, you know, four or five times a week or something. And I, I think it's interesting work, not for nothing. Like, I enjoy it. I think, you know, it's a really interesting kind of clinic. It's not a clinic that exists in great number. I've encountered, you know, heard about some analysts who do this kind of work. Um, my understanding is there's actually some kind of a Lacanian clinic in Greece that that offers a very similar service, mm. uh, including working with with siblings of children who have uh, passed away, these kind of things. Um, and here and there, I, I hear about these things. But I mean, to be able to do this, I think is, is you know, it yields very interesting results for a person in their analysis who might not have encountered an analyst any other way. These accidents are, you know, so interesting. I went to a counseling program. I became an analyst instead. Mm -hmm. That's an accident. I could have just as easily been, well, I don't think I could have easily been an EMDR therapist or something, but I had this encounter with analysis mm -hmm. and it changed things for me. And I think it can do things in this clinic too. I want to circle back to something else that, that you said it, as well here. I made a note when you said it and I don't want to forget about it here. And it's about the way that you use the variable length session or, or the short session. You said that you'll see people two, three, maybe even more times per week, but you're seeing them for a shorter duration. And I, I want to ask you to maybe speak a little bit more about that because this again is something that comes up in a lot of the teaching that I do within a university. I'll bring up, there's, there's one class where I talk about the short session. There's, I have them read an article, the students read an article about it. And usually their reaction is, what? That's crazy. And I, they, they're like, that, that's, that would make people mad. People would hate that. Um, mm -hmm. People are going to say, I, I should get my time, blah, blah, blah. And one of the things that I respond with is, you know, when you, when you are able to work this way, because I've been able to work this way, I've been able to see people multiple times a week. And when I'm doing that, I'm typically using a not 45-minute long session. Uh, the sessions are however long they are. You know, you don't know how long they're going to be. Sometimes they are incredibly short. I've had I've had some very yeah, short yeah. sessions. Th those are more outliers, I think. But you know, they they last as long as they last. But if you see somebody for you know twenty minutes three times a week, they've gotten their hour of of work essentially. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? It's just been broken up into to three different things with some gaps in between, and it really changes the nature of the work, the pacing of the work is very, very different. And it, it's my experience that, that that allows for things to happen a lot faster, actually. And the analysands that I've done this work with have almost ubiquitously commented upon this. They've all said, it is crazy how fast this is going. Sometimes they want to slow it down, right? Because the shorter session does mean that things come up and they're, they're reflecting, they're thinking, they're coming back, they're talking again. There hasn't been a huge gap in between. And, and, change can start to, to speed up and get moving a little bit faster than they're comfortable with. In which case, if people bring that up, I, I do tend to slow things down. Uh, but anyways, I'm curious, does this match up with your own experiences of using the short session? Does, does doing things that, that shorter duration multiple times a week, 
how does that affect the overall cadence of the work that you're doing? I guess is the question I'm attempting to ask. I, I want to ask. So you're you're teaching about the short session in a social work program, right? To people yeah. who want to be doctors or masters of social work, correct? Uh-huh. The only people I've ever heard complain about the short session are other clinicians. Mm. Mm-hmm. Who, who are like, oh, I couldn't do that. I could never. Uh, da, 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 da. No, I need my hour. I paid for it. Hmm. But at least in this kind of clinic, like it's almost so intuitive that it's been said and that there's nothing more that can be said. There, why say, why linger? That's not to say it's all short. And I mean, some of this is is by necessity that I have such an amount of patience that, you know, sometimes... I could see people for 10 hours a day and sessions are going to be about a half hour just because I've got that many people coming in. Mm -hmm. Sorry to say, sometimes it is like that by necessity, but it does pick up the tempo of the work. That's not to say it can't go longer Uh, without saying too much, not saying really anything. Someone I've been working with for a couple of years now recounted an experience of loss in such depth a few weeks ago and I said almost nothing, which is not really my style. To, there are analysts who say very, very little. I'm not one of those. Um, and I said almost nothing. And an hour elapsed and some time went after that. It needed to be said. That needed to, to go longer. Mm-hmm. So it's not as to say they're all short. Um, Here's a... It is a- in, in due time. And this, in fact... I think this was waiting to come out from this person for quite a while. And then it did here. This is a, a weird kind of technical thing. So again, I'm, I'm in the weeds here a little bit and I recognize that, uh-huh. but, uh, with obsessional patients, obsessional sometimes will be very concerned about the time, right? In my experience anyways, mm-hmm. this, this is mm-hmm. the time. And I've found that sure. sometimes, you know, cutting a obsession, uh, somebody with an obsessional structure, neurotic obsessional, a little bit short or a lot short, that that has various mm-hmm. effects. As does letting, as you just mentioned here, letting things go longer. So there have been quite a few instances where somebody will come in and they'll talk about various things and stuff. And we're getting to what would be the normal end of a normal session. And they go, oh, well, I can see that my time is up. And I go, eh, keep going. Don't you know, just you know, let's yes, see what happens. Uh, yes. Um, I've definitely, you know, sometimes I see this in the beginning with, with people I would consider more obsessional, like, oh, I really don't have much to report. Oh, well, you're not here to report. So go ahead and say something. Uh, now that that's out of the way, or now that that's out of the way, you've done your little dance again. What else is on your mind? You know, like, um, or even the, these people of these same kind of structures being like, well, I think that's it. When I cut a session, I generally, you know, get up or they'll have said something and I'll have said something like, you know, the session is over. Mm-hmm. And in the case, somebody tries to cut their own session or say, well, that's, that's that for me. Um, and they say nothing and let, let things keep rolling. I mean, there's, there's so many ways to, to cut a session really. Uh, mm-hmm. I, mean, I don't mind getting into the weeds with it, although I don't. I don't necessarily want to discuss particular cases, but I mean. Oh yeah, of course. I, it's not really the, yeah. the place for that. I but mean, that there's, there, there, cutting. I would say even cutting a session, maybe even more say scanning a session with a psychotic is sort of a more like. Now we have concluded here, perhaps, uh, sure. rather than like. 
Yeah, it's interesting to think about that. Um, just it, the the different different people require different styles, right? Like not everybody is going to be treated in the same way. Not every obsessional is the same. Not every hysteric is the same. Not every psychotic is the same. Everybody is one all alone. Every every encounter is one off. And this is one of the beauties, I would say, of psychoanalysis is that it does recognize that very, very, very explicitly. Everybody is singular. They're, they're, people, in fact, are struggling with their singularity, not their commonality. It's it's what makes them unique that tends to create some type of problems in their life. Uh, mm-hmm. So one of the other things I wanted to ask you about and the kind of work that you're you're doing here, and I've been trying to think of how to structure this question, so I don't know if I have it the way that I want to, but we are talking, so I'm just going to ask it in the configuration it's in. There is something in Seminar 24 that I think is really interesting. Lacan makes a distinction between savoir-faire, know-how, you know, which would be having knowledge and knowing how to then use that knowledge to make things happen in our lives. Uh, if I get a flat tire, there's knowledge. I, I can call somebody. I can, I know how to change a spare tire so I could do it myself if I needed to. I could, I'd have the know-how that I could put into action in that situation. So there's some situations where having knowledge is great because having knowledge means that you're not stuck. You can use your knowledge and get yourself out of some rotten situations. But there are other situations that having knowledge is not going to really have much of an effect. It's it's not going to have maybe zero effect, but it's not going to have what we call a significant effect. There are some things that require what Lacan calls savoir-faire, which my attempt to render that into English would be knowing how to deal with it or how to live with it, not knowing how to solve it with knowledge. Things that come to mind are mortality, death. Uh, These are things that are parts of a human life, and they're not things to which there is a solution. We can't just decide that the people who we love and care for or ourselves are, we're just not going to age, diminish, and die. That's just not going to happen to my people or me. I'm going to opt out of that one. You know, or uh, sex is a good one, right? Sexuality is a very powerful force in people's lives. It can be a source of enormous joy. It can also be a source of enormous problems for for individuals. And everybody has to come up with their own way of living with and dealing with their own sexuality, which is theirs and theirs alone. And there's other examples, but those two probably get the point across. The work that you're doing strikes me very much as work with situations that knowledge is not going to be able to fix. It is not going to be able to be that helpful. It might be a little helpful, but not that helpful. And instead, what's going on is working with people to help them maybe construct something that would be called savoir-faire, a way of living with a terrible, tragic, and traumatic thing that has happened to them. And I'm really curious what you would say about that. I, I would say that's very much in line with almost how you know, there's a couple of things I do speak about in preliminaries. One is the fundamental rule, which I always emphasize. Another, I might, may or may not be like, well, you know, um, things may sort of go as long as they go uh, or not, you know, like. Um, so because I, Colorado is a large state, sometimes I work with people further away to, than Denver, the city where I have the office. Uh, and they may come in from out of town an hour or more once a month. And I may say, okay, well, you'll come in this Saturday morning and we'll have several sessions and we'll work together till then. 
Uh, and then that's that. And, you know, and the rest of the time we'll meet on the phone. Um, but also, again, there is that demand, like, will I get better? Which is what I asked my professor many years ago. Did the guy get better? Uh, will I ever get over this? Do other women get over this? You know, how long, how long have you seen other women get over this? Have you seen other people go on to have babies? Will my marriage be okay? Um, and I can't answer these. I, I make it clear that there is no guarantee that I, I can't know this, but perhaps the analysis and or the potential analysis and could come to have some knowledge of how this will function, that they could, you know, think about who they will be. Because I mean, there's really a before and after with this thing. You were this person, this subject, this thing happened that divided you. There's and now just an after, BC and AD, um, you know, after death for this, um, to reconstruct a different kind of person. But in a psychoanalysis, where one can, you know, perhaps not only mourn as Freud writes about mourning and melancholia to, to pass through this period of, of a loss of a love object, a very loved object uh, in some cases, and to come out on the other side and, and sort of have some more knowledge of one's case in that sense mm. uh, of who one is, or at least is a, a different idea, hmm. which is, is one of the funny things about grief counseling itself, the idea of grief counseling where it is just for grief we are just sticking to this and i think that would be pretty unethical uh on my part as an analyst if i was like no i'm sorry don't talk about this go back to the baby please that's that's mm -hmm. outside the bounds of these things that would be indeed counterintuitive to free association so yeah it's some some knowledge of the self uh perhaps or a, a different idea of who one is now or who one thinks they are, who one says they are, because you thought you were going to be this, a mother of this living child. Now you are not. Yeah. You brought up a term in that answer that stands out to me, and it's the, the preliminary interviews or the preliminary sessions. And, you know, I Miller said in his course at some point, I cannot recall the specific one, but there is a difference between an analysis that starts, an analysis that lasts, and an analysis that ends or has reached its time to conclude. And that's something that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I would say, yeah, I, I, I hear that and it sounds right. I buy that. I find in, in my work, so I don't know if this is how, how you think about it or how you work. If somebody comes to me, they might come to me saying, I have done a lot of reading about Lacan. I want to work with a Lacanian analyst, you are a Lacanian analyst, I would like to be in an, in an analysis. And so let's get that going. I don't think that analysis starts from the first session. I, I don't. I think that the preliminary interviews are a time and the, it varies from person to person how long those happen to go on for. But there's a point at which I find that analysis starts and it, it isn't from session one. Now you can start working towards it from session one, I would sure. say. That's that's possible. But there's something else that's that's happening. There's a story that I've heard, and I, I thought that this was kind of interesting. I, I, again, I don't know where this is from, but a, a person was coming to Lacan for analysis, and at a certain point they, they said as much. They're like, you know, I, I come here to, to do my analysis with you. And Lacan said, you're not doing analysis. You're just coming and we're visiting. 
Uh, and the, the guy was like, what do, you, what do you mean? And he's like, oh, well, maybe now the analysis will start. <laughs> but oh. it, it's, it's an interesting distinction, I think, right? Another way that Miller talked about it is using this thing kind of metaphorically, I think, there's the waiting room to analysis. And I think that that's what, for a lot of people, psychotherapy can be or what the preliminary interviews can be. It's this being in the waiting room and then eventually you kind of work your way back into the office and you, you start the analysis. So as I say that, again, how's that sound to you? Sound right, sound wrong, on base, off base, similar to how you work, different, whatever? No, I would, yeah, I would, I would say so. I've had, you know, plenty of, of people who came in and decided um, this was not for them, something, something, something indicated it was not for them. Um, there have been a couple times I've worked with uh, people who, had a little more means and we're like, actually my doctor said this treatment is recommended to me. It's almost always EMDR. And I've found an EMDR therapist, but thanks so much. I, I will definitely be in touch. Um, or even people that I've just worked for just a couple, couple weeks. And, you know, maybe they were like, oh, you know, I'm actually doing okay. I think things are fine. Maybe they are. Um, and that's that. Um, there, there, there is a, a case that comes to mind, and I'm not going to say anything about it, but that I don't think I was listening very well, and this person, their insistence was just, you know, it was, it was not going to work, uh, which did not end, didn't really start, but, you know, the, the resistance to the resistance of the analyst, it's all a way of me saying nothing, I guess. Um but yeah, it can take a while, like it, which is why you know people will come for weeks and months and years and to keep coming to to keep this pace going and see where we'll go. Uh, that it can take a while, years sometimes for an analysis to start. Um, mm. It's a question of can the analyst be patient enough uh, when it is sometimes just a lot of blah blah blah, or if we're just visiting still. That's interesting. That, that calls to mind a, an anecdote, um, and, and I might get the details wrong here, but the, I think the point will be apparent. So there was this person who was a psychoanalyst, and a person came to him for an initial session and kind of described their life, and part of what was going on with them is that they had this very, very lucrative job you know, that paid them incredibly well but they didn't like it very much. It was not the job that they was giving them a whole lot of satisfaction or, fulfill, or fulfillment. And they had this other thing that they loved to do, which was being a musician. And the person was saying, you know, I, I, I want to be able to, to do more with that, but I don't want to give up my, my job, which is, of course, extremely demanding of my time and my energy. And the analyst listened to this person talk for a little shy of an hour and near the end said something to the effect of, hey, it seems to me like you just have a really difficult choice to make here. And it's, you know, what really matters to you. You're not going to be able to have both of these things. You're either going to have the the nice job with the kind of cushy salary and the good benefits and all of the stability and security that comes with that, which might be something that really matters to you and that you want to have. And it may be giving that up and having a, a life that you can dedicate to the craft of music, which is going to mean giving up certain things. But you you really can't have both. You have to decide which one it is that you want and really only you can make that decision. I'm, if you want to come here and talk about that, that would be something we can do. Uh, up to you. And the guy said, uh, can I think about it and let you know? And he, the analyst said, sure, yeah, just give me a call if you want to make another session and we'll make it happen. And 
you know, if you decide not, that's great. Best of luck to you. Guy never came back, never came back. Years later, somebody shows up for a first initial session and comes in and says, uh, yeah, I, I got your name from this guy uh, who says he saw you a long time ago. He had this situation where he had this great job, but he wanted to be a musician and uh, so on. And so he basically describes the case I just described. And the analyst was like, oh, okay. Uh, and the person goes on, he's like, yeah, the guy said in, in one session, you just basically said this one thing, which was that he had to make a decision. And that made him realize he had to make a decision. I actually don't remember what decision he made, but he realized it was just that that was it. That was the whole thing. And that apparently had a tremendous effect on this dude's life. And so much so that when somebody else was encountering a problem, he's like, you should go talk to this, this analyst in, in one session. This guy said the thing that made me, you know, realize something really important and it changed my life. And I think that that's actually just such a, an interesting anecdote for so many reasons, but one of them is that it shows that you never know. You never know mm -hmm. how analysis is going to affect a person. I think something like that is probably exceedingly rare, but it could happen, I think, right? One session might be all it takes. I, I have seen extremely short treatments, the coordinates of which were maybe not as traumatic to these people as they thought. And things resolved pretty quickly, or at least they were like, oh, I got what I came here for, and thank you. And, and not in a way of, no, I don't want this, but in a very short order, um, something has shifted for me, and this is, this is fine for me, which is perhaps just a really short version of, well, now I've had a baby, and I don't think I need to come to this particular clinic in some ways. That some some demand perhaps had been satisfied unknowingly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's such an interesting thing, right? Like, um, and it's one of the joys of the work uh, of of working as an analyst. I think is that you are able to let things happen in the time they're going to happen and in the way they're going to happen. And this is one of the things again it differentiates it from other forms. I think of psychotherapy that have demands that things happen within a specific time frame or that they happen according to a specific, I don't know, set of interventions. Like if this, then that is the, the way it works where that's not present in psychoanalysis. It doesn't work that way. It's uh, show up, speak, see if you want to come back, pay the bill. You know, within those parameters, so many interesting things can happen. Well, it's an, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts, too, about the fact that this is a pro bono service. There is no no bill to pay, and there's so many different ways, I think, to interpret that. Um, how does one pay for their treatment then? Uh, you know, I've had cases where people didn't see me for a long enough time, and let's say maybe the issue wasn't at that after a while, one of child or infant loss, in which case, well, then they're coming to see me, not necessarily the nonprofit at that point. And, mm -hmm. and the coordinates of the treatment change somewhat with the introduction of a, a fee. Um, I don't know. What are, what are your thoughts on this? I know this is my interview, but I'm curious to hear what you have to say, Neil. Yeah, sure. I, I, I can take a stab at it. I, um, I'm familiar with the work of something called the C Center for Psychoanalytic Treatment. and something. It, it's a free clinic. Uh, air quotes, free clinic that exists in certain parts of Europe, CPCT. I think that's what it stands for. Um, Center for Psychoanalytic Consultation and Treatment or something to, to that effect. 
Anyways, people, sure. they're coming and there is a pay, there's a fee, but the fee isn't money necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was one woman who, you know, asked the person to pay with, uh, and, and the treatment is usually very limited. So the person, they, usually people get approved for 12 sessions and then they can get it extended to another 12. So a total of 24 sessions through this model. And in that time, they there there's something. So people have paid by, you know, with cookies. <laughs> they baked the endless cookies. They paid by, um, uh, with a bus ticket was one. The person really hated leaving their house, so they actually had to take public transportation and produce a ticket, and that was their payment. But the the important thing is that there was something. They had to. They did have to mm-hmm. give something up to get the treatment. They couldn't get it for nothing, because if you sure. can get it for nothing then it's not valuable. There has to be something in stake. Yeah. I mean, and in, in your clinic, I gather that people are, you know, they're, they're coming to you. They're, so they're, there's something that's happening. Uh, I am, I did work once with, with people much earlier in my career where I would see people for without charging them money if they were in really, really, really dire straits. And I found that they did, they stopped coming very quickly. To, to me when they weren't being charged. And I found that once I started to charge even a nominal fee, say $5 a session, $10 a session, a, you know, something that, that was probably an amount that they could afford without impacting their uh, life negatively, without preventing them from getting other things that they needed, then that actually meant they came more often. And, and so the, the fee definitely is a huge part of the treatment. I think sometimes people don't want to think about that. Uh, in social work, for example, there's this sort of uh, tendency to see money as this this kind of nasty, dirty, awful thing, and mm-hmm. it, it certainly can be that, but it doesn't need to be that. It's something that I think. So that's how how I work uh, with it now. It's some of my thoughts. I, I, another yeah. uh, uh, last thing I was going to say is that uh, this is a practice that I've picked up. I don't even know where I when I started doing this or why, but I do it a lot now. When people come to see me for the first time, I never charge for the initial interview. I just don't, don't pay, take money for mm-hmm. that because I find that once money has been exchanged, it, it creates a demand. It creates an expectation that I have to get something for what I paid for. And I really want psychoanalytic treatment to be something which is a person's choice. They have to want it. They have to sure. desire it. They have, it has to be something in it that, that they naturally, organically, and intrinsically desire. And so by not taking their money for that first session, it's like, let's show up, let's talk, let's see if there's, I don't know, some kind of uh, a good fit or some kind of analytic chemistry here. And if there is, we'll figure out a fee and we'll, we'll make that work. And so that's, that's one of the things that I do. And I, I found that to be an incredibly effective way of working with people. It has made a difference in my practice for sure. But after that, you're, you are paying. But Patricia Garavisi says it's somewhere, um, in one of one of her books or articles about low cost and pro bono analysis at um, at some place she was working at, I believe in Philadelphia, there were, you know, many people who were coming to treatment for years and years and years and years and years and weren't paying anything. And the analysis again seemed to be going nowhere at certain points. But then with the introduction of even a nominal fee, uh, things things again get moving. And it's always, right. you know, to each to each case when to introduce that. Mm-hmm. I've, I, you know, I've, I've, I adjust people's fees based off of their life circumstances too. So, I mean, people will, 
you know, lose a job, they'll have a child. Those can be some major, their, their partner might lose their job and, and that can really change the dynamic because uh, if maybe they were the ones who were providing health insurance for an entire family and, you know, it's very, very expensive to buy health insurance for a family in the United States. So when these events happen, I have had a lot of people tell me a version of, I need to stop because I can't afford this right now because of whatever has happened in my life. My thoughts are that those times are not the times to stop. Sometimes they might be. You know, if the person is in a really decent place and they just want to hit pause for a little bit, sure. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say no to that. But what I do say is something like, you know, I find that these times can be pretty trying, pretty hard, and maybe stopping your analysis or your, or your treatment at this moment might not be the the best thing. It might be, this might be one of the most beneficial times for you to be engaging in this process. Perhaps, right? I'm I'm open to what the patient or the analysand has to say about that. But I, I offer that and I say, sure. maybe there's a way that we can come to an arrangement that, that would work and let's set it up for a period of, usually my, my period is three months. You know, so in three months, what we'll do is we'll see where you are and we'll we'll see what if we need to make changes again. And, uh, you know, sometimes that means the fee goes up, actually, and other times it means the fee goes down. And this is just a, a way of working through that with somebody. Uh, other times people are kind of skeptical, I think, in the beginning of analysis, like, I'm not so sure about this because this is going to be really expensive. I don't know. And I'm like, well, let's let's try it at this amount. You know, the, it, again, it depends on the person's particulars. Let's try this amount. Would that work? Sure. And they're like, sure. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I can do that. And I'm like, okay, we'll, we'll set it there. Let's see where you are in three months. Now, usually three months down the road, there's been some kind of a benefit to the treatment for the person if they've stuck around for three months. And they're, when I bring it up again, I'm like, Hey, are you getting something out of this? And there's, there's a, yeah. And that means that maybe we need to up the fee a little bit. And it's just, this is an ongoing dynamic that I, I attempt to manage in ways that I think are responsible. And sometimes that's easier and sometimes that's harder. Uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know. It's really hard for me to tell sometimes if I'm overvaluing or undervaluing the work that I do with, with different people. Um, but it is very much a conversation. It, it isn't me saying this is what, what it needs to be. It, it's an ongoing dynamic that evolves and changes as, as people's lives evolve and change. I mean, because analysis takes time. It goes on a while. Um, people's situations may, may shift several times even. Yeah. I mean, there's been a lot of times I, I think where people, if you asked them, would say that their situations and their jobs have changed. And one of the ways that those can change is they start making more money. Part of the reason their job might have changed is because of the analysis. It might not be, but sure. it could be, you know. And, and it's I mean, people tend to be pretty fair people, I find, right? Like if mm-hmm. if they know that, if they understand that, then they'll they'll be like, yeah, this is this is an important thing in my. It becomes an important thing in their life. Mm-hmm. They 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 experience it as valuable. I don't tell them it's valuable. I don't demand that it's valuable. They experience it that way. And if and when they do, then it really is not that difficult for there to be a, a negotiation of a fee that is equitable for, for both people. And again, sometimes that means that the person is paying a significant amount of money for what you're doing, but not all the time because not everybody has a significant amount of disposable income or whatever that they can can toss at this. I mean, I, I, people say a lot. I, 
somebody told me um, when I was talking about being in psychoanalysis myself, they're like, oh, isn't that just like such a luxury? And I, I thought about it. And I, at first I was like, no, it's not. But then I really thought about it. I'm like, it kind of is in a lot of ways a luxury, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And, but it's not, it, it's a luxury that also has a lot of utility to it. So it's luxurious, I suppose, in a way to be able to go multiple times a week and speak to somebody about myself and my life and my symptoms and other things. Sure. But it it does something that I think has really, really positive, meaningful effects on me and, and the way that I live my life. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's just, if that happens for other people, then great. Like I said, they vote with their feet and they, they keep coming in and they, they keep asking for more and they, they don't stop. They don't say, I think I need to, to quit. And, mm-hmm. uh, and there's other people who hit that point where they're like, you know, this is enough for me. I'm, I'm out. <laughs> I think that can all be talked about too, like the idea of uh, speaking about the price and that the price itself could be, you know, to each within reason. Um, yeah. You know, you know, this is, this is pro bono analysis for people at this nonprofit, not pro bono analysis for everybody who comes in here. That's not going to work. And I, and you're being paid for the work. It's not like, yes, right. The, the agency yeah. is paying you to sure. work with people. Uh, I worked once at a at a clinic, and they had a something they called it a mental health access fund, which got it funded mainly through donations from different individuals and some institutions. And the way that this worked is, if you had a patient that couldn't, you know, pay the the full fee, what you'd do is you'd fill out an application, and they had different documents that they asked for, usually like a W two or something like that, that would show what what an income was. And then based on that, they would say, okay, so the patient will pay X dollars and then the remainder of the fee will be paid to you by the agency from this fund. Mm, I see. And mm-hmm. the way what we were told when we were, were there is, you know, this, this money is not limitless. This is not a bottomless, you know, barrel of, of money that you can always dip into whenever you want. So please use this when you need to and don't use it if you don't. And please be responsible because... If the money runs out, the, the, it's not there, right? People aren't going to be able to continue their treatment possibly as a result of that. So, so be responsible. And people were. You know, they, they really tried to access it as a need. They didn't do it just because they could. And I think that that made treatment much more available to people. And so I, I, I say that, I guess, in case anybody who's listening to us talk about this right now is in a position to create something like that or fund something like that, you know, please do, because it does have an impact on people who are seeking help and it does allow for people to get the help that might make a difference in their lives. And, and donors are, are so, so generous uh, with their time and their money. I feel like I'm on PDS saying this, but I mean, really like this is a 100% supported by people's donations and by fundraising and, you know, people understand uh, who comes here and for what, and maybe because of some experience in their own life, maybe even a past experience, like do donate pretty heavily. And that's, you know, people express their appreciation. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think, and, it's, and again, it's just so important to be able to do that, to, to find those mm-hmm. things and, and support them financially, because if, Psychoanalysis does need to be supported financially. Good programs need to be supported financially. Without the finances, it's going to be difficult to impossible for them to exist. And this is just a reality. 
And, and I know it's very easy for me to say to other analysts, like, oh, it's, you know, just work pro bono with some people. Donate your time. I pretty much got a one in a million shot with this job. I just happened to be there at the right place at the right time. And I know that's not the case. You know, a lot of analysts, especially in formation, especially in their younger years, do end up working in places that maybe aren't as supportive of, of analytic treatment. And for a variety of reasons, this nonprofit has been very supportive of me and the work that I do. Yeah, well, that's really cool. So we've been talking here for a little over an hour and a half. Uh I've enjoyed like, it. Yeah, me too. Thank you very much for taking the time to be here. I wanted to give you a chance to, uh, you know, say anything that's been on your mind throughout this conversation. Uh, anything that you think would be a good closing note, we can end on that. Um, and if you don't have anything on your mind in particular, one of the things that I think can be really helpful to people is uh, if you have any recommendations for something that they should be looking at, like if something they should be reading, something, some YouTube channel they should should check out some thinker whose work is you think valuable in some ways to essentially make a recommendation. Yeah, I actually will. Uh, I'll resist the temptation to just say, well, all of Freud and all of Lacan or show off like how much I read and really recommend Elizabeth and Danto's uh, Freud's free clinics. Everyone talks about this book. I, you know, people say, Oh, you know, they had free clinics back in Freud's uh, Vienna and, and in Berlin and all the analysts donated their time. But what they don't say is it actually gives you a blueprint for how this kind of thing can run and be done even today. I mean, you know, the economy of Vienna is very different than the economy of, you know, uh, the Western world now. But it still shows how such a thing can be done, you know, in theory. And I, I really looked at it uh, as a blueprint for what I'm trying to do here. It's not as if I made so many radical changes uh, to the structure of this thing, but I try to ascribe to that ethic. Um, yeah, it seems like nobody ever, it, it's such a practical book for a, for a historical document. I mean, maybe that's why it's very practical. It's like, this is how this was paid for. This was how this was paid for. These analysts donated their time in this way and people agreed to do this. And um, maybe more people should read it. It's also very critical of um, the International Psychoanalytic Association, which no one else ever seems to mention either. Yeah, I, I, this book, if it's the one that I'm thinking of, this is the one that really like lays out the history and like you pointed out, the structure of what was called the Amblatorium, which was this free clinic that was set up in, I believe, like Berlin, right? Mm -hmm. uh, by Carl Abraham, Sandor Ferenczi, and, and Freud were the sort of yeah, there people. Yeah, there were several. There was one in Vienna. There was one in Berlin. Uh, Budapest, maybe? Uh, Wilhelm, uh, Budapest, yeah. And and it's it's doable. I mean... In theory, people can do it. It's just a question of if they want to do it. I mean, but then we're addressing things like the relative cost of a formation of training of one's own analysis of control of cases, which, you know, again, to each their own, but even working in uh, community mental health, as they say, for most of my career so far, I've found these things accessible. There's, there's always a way to access one's own formation, just perhaps outside of... Uh, "Quote unquote normal training routes through mm -hmm. a school of Lacan, perhaps." Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, that that is a really wonderful recommendation. I also would heartily recommend it to anybody. Yeah. Uh, I will put a link to that book in the show notes. I do believe that it is kind of hard to get a copy because I, oh. if I'm, 
I, I'm not sure about this, but I think it's out of print at this point. And so you got to yeah, find used copies. But I'll do my best to direct people to places where they might be able to find that. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's actually in print. I'll, I'll check later. And if it is, that's groovy. Uh, Michael McAndrews, thank you so much for taking the time mm-hmm. to be here on the podcast. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully you'll be willing to come back again at some point in the future and have another conversation. Yeah, absolutely, Neil. Thank you. I look forward to it. Take care. All right. So you have stuck around for the post-outro music thing that I tend to do. I got the idea of doing these from watching Marvel movies. You know how in Marvel movies they do the closing credits and then there's like a stinger that sets things up for something that's going to come next? I kind of like that idea. And so I decided that I was going to do my own version of it and put stuff at the very end of the podcast after the outro music. And you're listening to it, so apparently you think that that's groovy the same way that I think that that's groovy. So we're, we're thinking the same way. That's nice, isn't it? I think so. So today, what you're going to get, and you might want to stop listening actually when you hear what it is, is a little bit of self-promotion, and in addition to that, I'm going to ask you for something. So let's start with the self-promotion. There is a thing that I've been doing for some time called Surplus Jouissance Projects, and what that is is all of the different things that I make and put out on the internet, such as the Informed Podcast. That's one of the things that I make. I make other stuff too, and I don't have to make these things. I make these things because I like making them. It's fun for me to make them. I enjoy it. Making stuff like this does not fill a need. It's not something I need to do. It does bring me enjoyment. And for that reason, I think it's safe to call these different projects things that bring me surplus jouissance. Thus, I group them under the title surplus jouissance projects. Now, I've created a website, which is the place where you can kind of go to and you can see at a glance, all of the different things that I'm doing, all of the different things that I'm making. That website is surplusjuissance.com. So if you go there, you'll be able to see all the different projects that I have going on. In addition to that, you will see that it is a sort of a blog type website that I update almost every single day. What do I update it with? So glad that you asked. I'm always reading stuff. I'm reading articles, I'm reading books, I'm listening to podcasts, and very often I come across something, a piece of text or a piece of audio that I think is interesting or important. It's something that I want to use in my own work or it's something that I don't want to forget. And what I will do usually is I will make a very short blog post and where I, I take the text or the audio file or whatever it is that I found and I, I put it where on, in a post and I put a link to where the source was. Then I offer just a little bit of commentary on it. The posts that are posted at this website usually take very little time to read. Anywhere between one to three minutes, a five-minute long read would actually be pretty long. So that's the kind of stuff that you'll see there. Like I said, you'll see this like almost every single day. Uh, some of the websites that are similar to it in terms of the the content that gets created, and well, the length of the content that gets created, there's this website called Daring Fireball, which is a website about all sorts of technological stuff, and the posts tend to be pretty short there. Another one is cotkey.org, which tends to be weird stuff on the internet. And again, those posts are pretty short and pointing out to some other thing. And that's the sort of posts that I'm making at Surplus Jouissance. In addition to those short posts, which are kind of, I guess, um, my public-facing notebook in a way, I also write an email newsletter. And you can sign up to get that email newsletter 
at surplusjuissance.com. The email newsletter is weekly-ish. Every now and then I skip a week, but it's generally weekly-ish. And it announces all the different things that I have going on, podcasts that I'm going to be recording, things that are coming up, talks that I'm going to be giving, classes that I might be teaching, so on and so forth. So it's a way to keep up to date with different things that I have going on. And uh, I try to, to write the email newsletters like a, an actual letter, like I, I, a letter that I'm writing to a person who might be interested in the things that I am also interested in. And then I also announce the different things that I'm doing. So uh, I don't know if you'd be interested in that. That's my self-promotion, surplusjuissance.com. If you haven't checked it out and this sounds cool to you, please take some time and go and check it out. Which brings me to the thing I'm going to ask you about. If you do this, if you check this out, You'll notice if you sign up for the email newsletter that you can just sign up for a free membership, which means that you'll get the email newsletter, or you can sign up for a paid membership to Surplus Jouissance Projects. There's two tiers of paid membership. One is called the AV Club that costs $5 a month or $50 a year. The other one is called a supporting membership, which costs $10 a month or $100 a year. Why am I doing that? Well, making all the things that I make maintaining the Surplus Jouissance website, making the informed podcast, paying for the podcast hosting, paying for the equipment that I use to record the stuff, paying for the scheduling software that I actually use to schedule interviews with people. All of that stuff costs money. It does not cost a huge fortune or anything like that, but it doesn't cost an insignificant amount of money either. And one of the things that I'm trying to do is offset the cost of making the podcast and the other things that I make. If I could do that, that would be really helpful to me. Now, regardless of whether or not I'm able to offset these costs, if I do, if I don't, it doesn't really matter. I'm going to continue making the informed podcast and I'm going to continue making the things that I make because, as I said, they bring me surplus jouissance and I like my surplus jouissance. So even if you don't become a member, an AV club member or a supporting member, that's cool. You know, by all means, continue to listen to the stuff that I make, read the stuff that I write, so on and so forth. You're welcome to do that, and I would appreciate it if you did. But if you're somebody who likes this stuff and you think it would be really nice to help me offset the cost that goes into making it, I would certainly appreciate it a whole bunch. And you can do that by becoming a member of Surplus Jouissance Projects over at surplusjouissance.com. Okay, that's it. I've done my self-promotion. I've asked you for money. I feel really weird about it. And so I'm going to stop talking now. I hope that you will come back and listen to some more podcasts in the future. I hope that you will check out surplusjuissance.com. And that's that. Make some glorious mistakes. Don't let the man keep you down. Damn the demand. Save the desire. Talk to you next time.